So, hello, Sean. Thanks for joining this uh, inaugural podcast. So I'm Harry, Harry Kemsley from Jane's. And as the president of the National Security and Government part of Jane's, I thought it was about time that people like you and I got together, had a conversation about a few things that I think are both topical and interesting. To get us started, I can give you a second to talk about yourself. Just give us a couple of words about who you are. I've known you for a very long time, and we both had a lot more hair when we started. But uh, give us a few words on yourself, Sean, just for those that don't know you. Sure, great. Uh, It's good to be here, Harry. Um, So I'm Sean Corbett, ex-Royal Air Force Intelligence Officer uh, of about 30 years. Spent most of my time in hot and dangerous places, supporting various different commanders, uh, all the way from the strategic to the tactical level, uh, which is less of a relevant model these days. But I've had some really interesting tours, including the final tour, which was as a deputy director of the Defence Intelligence Agency in the US on loan to the US with specific role of increasing intelligence sharing with mainly the Five Eyes uh, allies, but also other partners, a real privilege. Since then, I've been doing various things. I left the Air Force uh, about two and a half years ago now, worked for a imagery analysis uh, and provision company developing artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities so we could do automatic object recognition, taking out the human in the loop as much as you can. And then I went uh, solo and since then I've been working, well before that obviously we've been working together. Uh, One of my roles is now uh, on your strategic advisory group and as you know that uh, as you are as well I've been championing open source intelligence for a number of years now. Absolutely. Thanks, Sean. So what I thought we would do with this regular check-in is look at a range of different themes, both contemporary, but also some of them universal. They've always been the way that they are. What kind of thematics would you like to discuss here, Sean, in this podcast go for? What are the things that you think um, would be interesting both for you and I, and hopefully therefore for the audience? Um, what's really interesting at the moment is, unsurprisingly, you know, the world is being looked at through a COVID lens, and that's absolutely right. But all the dynamics that have been happening in the world are still going on. But I think the really important thing is is to go through the, uh, as you've said, you know, what, what is what is open source intelligence? As you know, that's something that, that you and I have both been looking at for a long time. I, I would say there's there's a there's almost an irony right now right now where there is so much information out there. You know, how do you get to the truth? Because the irony is that although there's that much information, so much of it is wrong, and that could be disinformation, misinformation, or just wrong. And in the open source domain, as well, exactly the same as in is in the classified government domains, how you get to the truth is is becoming more and more complex. So I think we could unpack that. You know, we're getting into a more connected, digitized world that comes with advantages and disadvantages. So that so that that's another area. I think that's a great theme. I mean, you and I have both been in times when we lacked for information, or perhaps probably better said, we lacked for access to the information we needed at that time. Yeah. Um, the challenge these days is deciding which bit of information to rely upon because there's so much of it out there, as you, as you alluded to. Um, I think people talk these days in a variety of acronyms around it, but the one I remember first from some years ago is the volume, variety, and veracity, and the veracity piece of the bit you touched on there, but we can come back to that for, for sure. The open source domain as well, Sean, I think is worth looking at because I don't think necessarily everybody fully appreciates yet just how powerful open source can be. I think we're better today than we were even just two or three years ago with um, a number of different things being discovered in the open source well before they were found or even looked for, probably better said, in the more classified environment, but equally the power of that open source to direct the exquisite assets and capabilities that governments have to look for the thing they really want to find, 
helping them decide where to start looking, which part of the haystack is the best place to start looking is one of those things we can look at. Um, I think as well, Sean, and you touched on it a second ago, the emergence of advanced analytics and uh, artificial intelligence. It's back, back in the day when I was working in joint planning, joint military planning, I remember the days when people started talking about effects-based operations, General Deftula's um, originated thought. And if you weren't talking about effects-based, then you weren't, frankly, yeah. relevant. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that the word cyber has gone through that particular mill in recent years. But then in more recent times, if you're not talking about machine learning algorithms and how they drive artificial intelligence, then again, you're not relevant to, uh, to anything. I I'd really like to dig into that. I, I think there are many advantages to use of technology, but I think you and I both bear the scars of having been let down by technology so many, many times over the years. But I have to be honest that at the risk of sounding like a middle-aged, grey-bearded old man, then I actually don't start with the um, presumption that it will help me. I start with the presumption that it may be helpful. We'll find out. And just on that one, you know, it, it's a really well-made point that if you're a company out there, and even even defence, actually, you know, there's the Joint um, AI Centre, for instance, in, in the States, and I think we're about to follow that route. It's got right. to be understood that it's a tool. It's to make what you do easier, and it's not going to replace the cognitive so what piece. And I know there are analysts out there that think they're going to be replaced by algorithms. For me, that's not that's not the case. That's not what it's all about. It's about using tools to make your own time where the cognitive processes more efficient, the so what and the what if, as I've always called it. So I think that's a really important one. And if I could just go back to what, another point that you made about, you know, open source intelligence versus the super secret source stuff, you yeah. know, just because something is classified or taken from exquisite sources doesn't mean to say it's right. And I really think that, you know, we're getting there, but, you know, slow, slow to change, cultural, institutional change, that sort of thing, is, is that, you know, at the moment, probably if you're in the intelligence world, 80% of what you use is going to be from classified sources with a little bit of added extra where there's a few few gaps that you don't have added with the with the open source stuff. I would strongly suggest that in the not too distant future, if we're going to stay relevant within the, you know, the, the community as a whole, that's going to be reversed. And you're going to talk about probably 80% of open source of stuff is going to take from most open source, which then allows a far more efficient use of the exquisite, very expensive uh, collection assets within the you know the intelligence world to actually do that extra value added so it's almost a reverse in 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 the way that I certainly look at it yeah I, I agree in fact I, I have heard in my conversations with seniors around the intelligence world almost exactly that starting to emerge it by no means is the norm but it is not anymore the exception that it once seems to be that you would use open source as a primary source to get you into things that you really do need to look at with more exquisite and capable uh, classified means that would be available to governments and the like. So we'll put that on the map for a theme for you and I to uh, chew on in the coming uh, weeks for sure. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I guess I'm almost obliged to talk about given what Jane's does as increasingly data-centric intelligence work for Jane's is how organizations like Jane's, but not exclusively Jane's, can work with governments, how we can step into the defense and national security arena and actually be of great use. I have seen in the last six, or seven years I've been at Jane's um, a very simple way of looking at it. It's not very simple to do, but it's a very simple way of looking at it. And that is in the, in the capabilities that governments have and in the capacity they have to use the capabilities they've got to do all the things that they need. And it's in that capability and capacity 
domain that I found Jane's is able to step in as a commercial organization and help create a capability or fill a capability gap or indeed just scale something for a customer that is otherwise unable to do so for a variety of good reasons. So without wishing it to become all about how commercial organizations specifically do things in intelligence, what I'd be really keen to look at is where could governments think about expanding their engagement with um, with partners from industry and how, how would that benefit both sides? Uh, I think it's fair to say, Sean, from your experience as a senior in DIA in the US, you will have seen a great deal more prevalence of contractors on the floor plate. You've seen a great deal more engagement day to day, week to week of contractors in the workflow. Um, and that's something that I think the US are better at overall. Uh, I'm yeah. sure there are pros and cons with it, and I'd love to look at those pros and cons. But that whole idea about the community of interest, including a commercial partner as much as it does, perhaps another one of the Five Eyes partners, if you're a Five Eyes member, you know, that, that community of interest expanding into the commercial realm is, a, is an interesting topic, and one that I'm convinced we need to get right. We haven't quite got it right yet. No, I agree with that. Um, they are very different models than the USA to the UK. And a lot of that comes down to that, that word culture. It's easy to hide behind trust and clearances and all the rest of it. But the US is able to treat contractors as they would with somebody within the intelligence community. It's still a need to know, but they go through all the vetting process. And they're just another an, another sort of expert that happens to sit in the space. I think in the UK particularly, and, and, and to an extent, some of the other Five Eyes partners as well, you know, we tend to thinking we have to do it ourselves. And, and of course, that comes with all sorts of training burdens and, 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 you know, resource that you just don't have. So that some stage there's, there needs to be that, OK, how do we trust? It's that trust word. We're going to come back and back to that trust word. How do we trust commerce to, to do what we need them to do without either giving away our secrets or giving away our intelligence gaps, which is, which is a, a valid thing to, 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 to worry about? But I think inevitably, you know, and, and going to, to change, you know, the sources that you have, the tradecraft that you have, the information you have, you cannot replicate that right now without a huge amount of money being thrown at it within the intelligence community. So some way, shape or form, there has to be that accommodation. And that's going to be evolutionary, not revolutionary, I believe. And it's going to have to be that development of trust over time. All right, well, let's put that on the map. We talked about um, things like artificial intelligence, getting to the truth, verifying what we see. And you've used that word trust quite a few times, Sean. So I definitely want to uh, hold that as one of our themes throughout, because ultimately, as a decision maker, you want to be able to trust the information you're basing your decision on. And intelligence is a massive part of that decision making cycle, of course. Um, in the interest of time for this introductory podcast, Sean, what are the kind of topics we could cover in the coming weeks. I mean, clearly there are probably an infinite list of topics. What kind of things would you like to go, go through in the coming weeks that we could uh, touch on, perhaps through those themes? The big strategic issues haven't really changed. Okay, we've got to look through in the COVID lens, but you know, you've got a, a you know China, which is is the sort of you know the new uh, potential hegemon, not just regional but globally. What does that mean? You know, is it is it because they do things differently? That you know, it's it's economic more than it is military but they are developing some military capabilities so we may want to look at that both from a sort of pure you know capability but also you know the threat capability you know plus intent plus opportunity but also how it impacts the region because something like 40 percent of global trade now comes from 
you know, the Indo Indo Pacific. And of course, it's not just a case of, all right, we're going to pivot and have a look at that now. It's part of the world order. And so I think it'd be really good to do a deep dive in in all those aspects, not just the China, but obviously yes. driven by China. So I think that's an important one. I, I think um, that's right. You think about, Sean, just to interrupt you for a second, you think about that um, event that you and I both spoke at in Indonesia, the geopolitical event. Yeah. One of the things that struck me at that event was the number of nations around the table, the virtual table, of course, who are from that region, who felt somewhat aggrieved that their sovereign airspace, their sovereign national interests were being trampled on, not just by China, but by other Absolutely. major uh, yeah. powers operating in that region for their own national interests. And, you know, with the best of intent, I'm sure, for the nations there, but we're basically trampling through the back gardens, the yards of those countries, perhaps unaware of the impact they were having on the, and the confidence and, and so on of, of those countries and the lack of multilateralism, which I think was the topic for that um, that event. So that I think China inevitably will be on our list of uh, topics uh, we can look at, but actually getting to the truth of what's happening in the Asia Pacific region uh, with China and around South China Sea, for example, I'm sure will be uh, something we'll need to touch on. Absolutely. And looking at the intent, you know, yes. if you talk to China, just say, look, we, we are just part of the normal international order. You know, the economy will do what it does. You know, we've got no intent to take over the world. But but is that true? And that's well, a really difficult question. <laughs> it, is, it is a difficult question. But it's interesting that you and I uh, started our careers 35 plus years ago when it was all about Russia and all about what was then a, a dying entity, the Soviet Union. And we were very good, we the Western world, and I'm sure for their part, the Soviet Union were very good at understanding each other in that strategic intelligence environment. But in the more recent few decades, we've been increasingly focused on non-state armed groups and terrorism of one sort. Yeah. Countering terrorism has been the major part of my uh, military career, counterinsurgency, counterterrorism. I spent most of my time countering things, it seems. And yet, now that we've started to recognize peer threats more as an everyday concern rather than an occasional glimpse, I think we maybe have lost the ability to understand how to do that strategic intelligence in the way that we have, particularly in the new order. And that's the bit that I'm winding away to saying, which is I don't think it's really just about the military orbit that is brought to the battlefield or the potential battlefield that is of relevance to these discussions with China and possibly Russia. It's, as you, as you touched on, Sean, the the manner in which warfare is waged is different today. And I don't mean even just cyber. I don't, I don't mean you know, the cyber domain per se. I, I think it's a great deal more rich than that. The use of economics, soft power, diplomacy skill, all of these things woven with the use of overt um, military power, like the recent uh, flybys of Taiwan by Chinese Air Force assets. All these things stitched together into a rich tapestry. And I think you and I could do well to unravel some of those topics within the themes we've described earlier. Definitely, yeah. I mean, call it what you will. I mean, the, the, the buzzwords change, hybrid warfare, asymmetric warfare, but it's absolutely true. It's losing all the leverage of, of power that I don't think necessarily us in the West have done particularly well. But but you, you raise a really important point because, you know, I remember it almost to the week where, you know, the, the, the sort of UK intelligence community pivoted from we knew everything to the was to know about Russia we didn't but we were pretty good and when no that's all over now you know the war's gone down just shows how old we are um right now it's all about terrorism and then we got very very good at understanding non-state groups but of yeah. course you know Russia never went away China's uh, upon us and so how do we balance 
you know, the or how does the community, including, you know, James, balance its weight of effort versus uh, of, you know, non-state, non-traditional threats as well, of course, um, mm. as well as as well as the sort of the, the, the traditional state actors. And that's a really tricky one, because just to just to sort of pull that thread like you, I spent most of my certainly my latter years, as I said, in hot and dangerous places, countering the, the violent extremist threats. And I'm worried that because now we're looking more internally as 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 countries, you know, the pandemic hits, the economy is getting getting dragged, you know, domestic terrorism potential. We can talk about that another time as well. But are we losing, you know, our focus on those ungoverned spaces and the economic and, and socio-political um, circumstances in which violent extremism, extremism is actually fermented. I would have mm. to say you're seeing very similar conditions now to what we were seeing when Al Qaeda came up and then and then the latest iteration of ISIL, you know, and, and the, the big question which I'd love to have, which is, you know, what I've been looking at for a long, long time is, you know, is, is all international terrorism actually domestic or is it international? Well, the answer, of course, is both things can be and are true. But yeah. I'd love to unpack that at some stage and talk about yeah. that. And of course, uh, looking at that whole range of topics in different geographies also teaches you something about what we haven't got right previously as much as what we need to get right that's different on this occasion. And of course, we're all seeing in Africa a whole series of dynamics bubbling up there that are, yeah. well, significant. But one of the things that I'm sure will be very different about Africa is the culture of Africa is different to that of the Middle East or that of um, Asia Pacific, of course. And it will bring its own variants of terrorism and strife. But it will also do so in a context of a world that is now fully awake to the environmental dangers that we face globally, to matters like pandemics. I mean, let's be candid here, Sean, we always have been. The West has been mostly ignorant of the realities of the likes of SAR in yeah. of previous years, which our Asia Pacific friends have done a great deal more to counter in their own experience of it and have been arguably more able to deal with this particular pandemic, COVID, uh, than we have. But we're now all woken up to it, both in the East and the West, and therefore we have to bear that in mind. And that overlays very, very clearly on top of all these national security concerns that we understandably would want to focus on based on our backgrounds and our, and our experience but we have to do that through the sort of non-traditional security threats yeah. threats to public safety as well you know one of the we will have our baggage but one of the things that uh, that always sticks out is the it was the ebola uh, crisis which is the first time we'd really certainly as a uk military had to address a, a non-traditional threat that you couldn't see hear and feel mm. and uh, we struggled through it if i'm being honest i mean there's some absolutely fantastic activity logistics were fantastic the command and control was great but as an intelligence community I don't think we ever really understood it because we weren't looking at that sort of thing. We weren't optimised to collect, for instance, against that sort of thing, most of which would have been at the unclassified level anyway. And, you know, as always, you go, uh, and I'm being frank here, and I'll probably upset people, but we used to call them lessons learned. Then it was lessons identified, and then it just went lessons because we never actually, we all sort of move on before we've really thought, OK, what do we need to do here? Um, and, and one of those lessons was actually being able to do intelligence at an unclassified level. Uh, which I remember writing a paper on actually after that event, and I don't think it went anywhere. But but you know those those are with us to stay, um, and I I really do hope, and I th I think now because this 
pandemic is a pandemic by definition, then I think we will learn those. But it, but it's a really interesting subject to get into. I think we've just given ourselves enough homework to keep us both busy for a few weeks. Um, oh, just a bit. Months. So let's just summarise then, Sean, the things to talk about coming forward then. So we've agreed that at the centre of what we want to talk about are the truisms that you and I have lived by for the last 35 years in and around intelligence, you very much in it, me around it and occasionally in it. That is getting to the truth, understanding how technology can support, enable, augment intelligence uh, process, thinking about how defence communities can operate better with commercial partners around them, thinking about where we're trying to get to in terms of the use of some of those really high-end capabilities that are out there like artificial intelligence, the, the latest um, version of the effects base, the cyber and now uh, artificial intelligence, and doing that around some of the re-emergent strategic threats like Russia, uh, looking at the knotty problem of China and their variety of ways of warfare which are alien perhaps to some of the military thinking that you and I certainly started out life in, as well as some of those non-state armed group factors that are still very present and potentially re-emergent in other parts of the world, like Africa, which will be different to the way we've seen in the Middle East. And then these non-security matters that absolutely will have uh, implications for national security, which we touched on at the end there. I think with those themes and those topics, we'll keep ourselves uh, extremely busy. We'll, uh, we'll see where it takes us. Uh, absolutely. Of course, we haven't even mentioned uh, DPRK, Iran, uh, climate <laughs> security, etc. So, and I'm sure we'll get into those as we talk about those themes. But now that sounds like a good plan. and I think it's going to keep us busy. I totally agree. So, Sean, first of all, thank you in advance for the support to this. We'll have an interesting conversation and hopefully bring some people with us on, on the way. And uh, again, thank you for your time. We'll speak to you again soon. Thanks, Sean.